You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. A very warm welcome to USIP. Thank you so much for coming here on this icy cold day. I'm Mary Speck, a senior advisor to the Latin America program. It's my pleasure to welcome you here today on behalf of USIP and El Faro English, Central America's pioneering digital magazine. We are here today to talk about exclusion, conflict, persecution, and displacement, but also about a distinct culture's extraordinary resilience. Our distinguished panel will discuss problems that may be especially acute within the Afro-Indigenous communities of Central America, but are hardly unique to them. The need to preserve ancestral customs while also providing young people with education, jobs, and hope for a better future. The need to protect collective property rights with the need to promote and share the benefits of economic growth. And fundamentally, since this is the United States Institute of Peace, the need to prevent and resolve conflict, not to preserve an unjust status quo, but to protect human rights and lives and livelihoods while jointly building a future that is more inclusive, more democratic, and more prosperous. USIP, for those of you unfamiliar with our work, is a nonpartisan, independent agency established by Congress in 1984 to prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict. We work in conflict areas around the world, including Latin America. In Colombia, we have supported the negotiation and implementation of peace accords, especially to ensure the participation of women and minorities. More recently, we have started working in Central America to support local grassroots efforts to prevent the violence that is forcing migrants to leave their communities for dangerous, often deadly, journeys to the United States. Before I introduce our panel, I'd like to remind our audience very briefly about the Garifuna people's extraordinary history. Their story begins, according to many accounts, with the wreck of a slave ship off the coast of St. Vincent, then a French colony. Those escape, these escaped slaves mingled with indigenous Arawak and Carib peoples, forming a distinct Afro-Indigenous culture. After the British took control of the island in the late 18th century, they deported several thousand Garifanas to the Bay Islands and the northern coast of Honduras. Today, there are Garifana communities all along the Atlantic coast of northern Central America, with a distinct language and culture that they've preserved for more than two centuries. But their lives and livelihoods are under constant threat from the expansion of tourism, the African palm industry and mining or hydroelectric pro projects, and from the devastating effects of natural disasters and climate change. Understanding, protecting, and strengthening the Garifuna peoples and their culture is not only important for Central America, but also for the United States. There are vibrant Garifuna communities throughout the US in major cities like Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Miami, and an estimated 100,000 Garifanas in New York City. We are fortunate today to have a panel that is uniquely qualified to discuss the challenges faced by Garifuna communities, both here and in Central America. Mirta Colon uh, was born in the Garifuna community of Trujillo, in northern Honduras, the Department of Colón. 
From there, she migrated to the Bronx, where she has worked to defend and promote the well-being of Latino and Afro-Central American communities. She is an expert on Garifuna history with degrees and certificates in social work and psychotherapy. She is president of Hondurans Against AIDS and of the Central American Black Organization. She is also an advisor to the Central American Integration System, or SICA, and a founding member of Alianza Americas, which encompasses 50 immigrant organizations that work in 10 U.S. states. Julio Guite Guevara was born in La Ceiba, capital of the Honduran Department of Atlantida. He is Managing Director of Sustainable Development and Climate Change, an organization that helps implement projects in vulnerable communities. He holds a Master of Laws degree and formerly worked as Deputy Director of, DC, of the D.C. Mayor's Office of Latino Affairs and as an Environmental Specialist with the Inter-American Development Bank. Andrew Seely is President of the Migration Policy Institute, a global, nonpartisan institution that works to improve immigration and integration processes, policies throughout, through research, learning, and dialogue. He is one of the foremost authorities on U.S. immigration policy and the author of books and articles too numerous to mention here. Before joining MPI, Andrew founded and led the Woodrow Wilson Center's Mexico Institute and served as the center's vice president. Ricardo Zuniga is a senior advisor here at USIP. Before joining us earlier this year, he was a senior member of the U.S. Foreign Service, most recently serving as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs and as U.S. Special Envoy for the Northern Triangle. Jose Luis Sanz, our moderator, is the Washington correspondent of El Faro and editor of El Faro English. He led investigative teams in El Salvador that have won numerous awards for their work on violence, gangs, and organized crime in Central America including the Gabriel Garcia Marquez Prize, the Latin American Investigative Journalism Award, and the King of Spain Prize, among others, plus two Emmy nominations. Thank you, and without further ado, I'll turn the event over to Jose Luis. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Keith, Miriam, and USIP for opening your doors to, to this activity and to this extraordinary panel. Thank you all for being here. Um, I have been asked to um, let know those who are following us from uh, through through YouTube or streaming platforms that you can submit uh, questions uh, through the platform, and someone would will read it, uh, read them uh, later in the uh, Q and A uh, part of the of the panel. Um, again, thank you all for being here. Um, I want to start from from the beginning. I mean, obviously we can uh, discuss for hours, for days, about the Garifuna history and the Garifuna situation and, and conflict in Honduras uh, mostly, but uh, I want to start with you, uh, Mirta, uh, maybe summarizing uh, the conflict uh, between the uh, Garifuna people and the Honduras uh, government or the, or the Honduran state. Um, because the, the history of the Garifuna people in Honduras has been one of, obviously, of exclusion, including the lack of legal recognition as a people to the moment, uh, persecution, and obviously conflicts over land. Um, also, Honduras is one of the countries with highest levels of violence against uh, human rights and environmental activists uh, in the world. Uh, so, so, what is the current situation, and, and can you? summarize the evolution of the conflict to the moment. 
Um, sure. Thank you very much for the invitation. And yes, um, it has been told that we arrived to Honduras in 1797. And uh, it was in eight, uh, 19, in the early 1980s that we learned that we was just occupying the area of the northern coast of Honduras where we live. We never knew, we thought that because we arrived almost 200 years later, that uh, the land was ours. And it was then when we were told that we was just occupying the land, that the land was not ours. So what we did, um, and, and I will say, and um, the late Celio Alvarez Casildo led um, the uh, fight in order to obtain the legal documents, the titles of the land since we were just occupying. So we were just a third, fourth, fifth generation of those who arrived and were still occupied, not owning. And uh, so there were a lot of things that we did and with the support of us, of the uh, community here from the um, US, uh, particularly from New York. So we did a lot of things. There was March of 15,000 people uh, who would take, um, who went to uh, Tegucigalpa um, to um, have a dialogue uh, with the government in terms of uh, obtaining the title. Uh, we did. We were able to obtain some titles. The title was so small that not even the community was, um, not, did not cover, not even the small community. And com our community are very small. We're talking about uh, each community, probably 6,000 people, 7,000, 8,000 people. So it's not that big. But the title was so big that not even the community was covered. So we say, yes, we're going to take this. And then, but then we continue working in um, expanding the, uh, the, the, the title and also in um, um, obtaining on how to deal with those people who were illegally obtaining also some part of the land um, and how that could be worked. Uh, will that be, uh, they will be compensated or how that will be worked. Um, however, the selling of the land became so um, uh, uh, like kind of a, an everyday uh, thing um, that there was a point that we didn't have no control over. Uh, so the problem continued, but we continued dialoguing, talking with the, uh, with the government, which continued talking uh, with them. They, then um, we saw like uh, an immigration uh, of people leaving uh, because we were not able to fish. I used to go uh, our morning through here, and we will go barefooted from through here to Santa Fe. It will t take us hour and a half to go from through here to Santa Fe. There was a point that you can't walk through the beach because the owners, they just closed the area where they, um, they, they purchased and um, they, you, can't, you can't walk from there. And the other thing was there is a law in Honduras that it says that if you find a piece of land where you could build a house and you could build it and stay there for three years and not 
no one will come and claim it as theirs, that you just go and, and put that land on your name and it's yours. So how come if we were there for almost 200 years, we can't be, what is that telling us? We can't, we can't um, uh, uh, put the land in, the, uh, in our name after almost two years of living there. So that's one. The other thing that we learned, even though that I was already here in the US when this happened, the other thing that we learned is that there is also a law that protect uh, of selling the land to people who are not born in Honduras, um, whether that is in the northern coast or in the borders. They, it cannot be sold, and that's the Article 107. And I also learned about this article in order for us to be able um, to go. And so we were traveling back and forth uh, to Honduras to support the work that is, it was being done. And then, yes, we used the Article 107. And then, um, so because we were using Article 107, they decided to change the article in order for the articles to say, Anybody who wants the piece of land in Honduras, they could buy it, but we did. And it was, it was reformed, but it wasn't approved then. I don't know now because we um, also embarked another uh, problem on the community that we had to let go some of that, uh, some of that work. Uh, I, I want to take a moment to talk about, uh, about violence too, because, because the, the, the level of threat and, and attacks against uh, Garifuna leaders has been also outstanding. Uh, and and that, uh, it, it has been one of the factors for, the, for displacement. Uh, can, can you tell, tell us about the situation in terms of violence or, or, or threats against uh, the Garifuna people in, in Honduras right now? Um, of course, that, that at this, at the long run, um, it will become a violence against against those who are working. Uh, let's say, like uh, there was uh, a problem in a, in an area called by they call it Vallecito, uh where at that point um, they the Garifuna leader went and 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 they have to like kind of put a title, uh, a former group. And then uh, in order for them to be able to obtain, uh, not to lose some of the uh, land, but uh, the investor who was then be the land being sold to him, he, wa he wa also wants to protect his land. So, um, and then, so what, what that brings, that you're gonna be fighting then with that person who is already purchasing the land and here you are claiming that it's yours. So eventually, yes, um, they have been a lot of uh, people protecting the land that they being they, they were killed, and um, and and then uh, they being removed from their housing that they the houses they disappear you don't hear from them, and uh, we still have uh, Miss Miriam Miranda who is uh, leading this fight right now uh, in Honduras and with a threat to her life. And the threat is uh, uh, on every single day, a uh, threat to her life. But yes, there have been a lot, of, a lot of problem, and the problem continues because not everybody wants to leave their, uh, you know, their, their home. Not everybody. Some of us run, but not everybody's running. And those who stand there and wants to fight, so of course their life becomes um, 
uh, be becomes in danger. And uh, not only that, but also um, those uh, who have no relatives uh, to support them from U.S., and which the immigration is not only to U.S., but it's also to Europe. We have uh, a big community in England. We have a big community in Spain. We have a community in, in Italy. Um, we are all over right now because everybody's fleeing. And, uh, and I'm talking um, especially from Honduras. And not only to uh, other internationally, but also locally. You will find Garifuna from Honduras running to Guatemala, running to Belize, running to Nicaragua, even though that those other countries have their own problems. But also, we, 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 we find um, the life in Honduras uh, unbearable that we have to go to those neighboring countries. Thank you. Uh, Julio. Um, you wear many hats. You are you are also a lawyer. You have been a, a human rights lawyer. I want to uh, dive into in, in, into the human rights uh, international uh, system uh, and how it uh, deals with this situ situation. Because um, on a number of occasions, the most recent being last December, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights has ruled in favor of the Garifuna people um, and, and their demands for recognition and, and, and the return of their land's rights. Uh, but the situation does not seem to be changing. Uh, I mean, how would you describe the situation in terms of human rights and in terms of international recognition of the, of the rights of the Garifuna yeah, people? Uh, first of all, thanks to the United States Institute of Peace for addressing this hemispheric issue, but also very narrowly tailored to the Garifuna community. I think that that's the right uh, approach. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be here with distinguished leaders like uh, Mrs. Mirta Colom. Uh, she as a president of the uh, Central American Black Organization, have been uh, working on these issues for almost 30, probably 40 years. And uh, she has been instrumental in the, in the fight that, that, we, that we have. I just want to provide a little bit of context, uh, or add a little bit more context to what she just said. Uh, here we are talking about a country of approximately 10 million people in Honduras. A, a community that uh, came in 1797. If you look at the Declaration of Independence of Honduras in section four, there is a provision that requires political representation taking into account people of African descent. And here we are talking about the election of one member of Congress per every 15,000 people without excluding descendants of Africa. Uh, although I also have to mention that uh, the black presence in Honduras has been, uh, has, has, has been uh, established since uh, 1518. Uh, the first blacks that came to Honduras came as part of the belonging of Hernán Cortés. So, uh, and there is an island that used to be a British colony uh, called Roatán Islands. Many of you may, may be familiar with Roatán. Roatan, in Roatan, we're going to find the Creole community, which is also Afro-descendant populations. In the islands, we're going to have, we're going to find a population of probably 50,000 50, people in, in the three big islands combined. The, the situation, the human rights situation of Honduras, you know, I think that the Garifunas in Honduras and the Garifuna diaspora 
celebrate some of the small uh, accomplishments. Uh, one of them has been the nomination and appointment of the first black member of the Honduran Supreme Court uh, a, few min a few months ago, approximately nine months ago. Uh, so for the first time, we were able to see a black presence in the court in the 202 years of independence that the country has. Uh, we, we find that has a significant accomplishment for the community, but the progress is extremely uh, slow and limited. In the case of uh, Honduras, we are still seeing numbers uh, at the border, at the U.S.-Mexico border. I think that in 2023 and 2022, uh, the Mexican government reported approximately 30,000 Honduras asking for asylum. Uh, similar numbers from 2022. And in, 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 in the area of also uh, of human rights, when you come and ask for asylum, is essentially because your life is at risk or your family is at risk. Otherwise, you don't come for those reasons. In the case of the Garifuna, or, 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 or the case of, of, of Honduras as a whole, let's say, 80% uh, of the population that lives in rural areas is still uh, living with a daily uh, rate income of $7 per person in rural areas. And in, if you look at the Garifuna communities, uh, which is part of these uh, nine uh, culturally differentiated ethnic groups, the numbers are even lower. We are talking about people surviving or making, let's say, three or four, three or three or two dollars per day. We have been asking the government and some international <coughs> organizations to provide assistance to help us collect that data to do the type of tailored work that is, is needed. In the case of, of the Garifunas, uh, there are four areas, five areas, that has been driving the agenda of most uh, Garifuna organizations. Number one is land rights. Ms. Mirta already explained us or told us a little bit about it. Uh, uh, second is education. Garifuna organization has been asking to be or to have the Garifuna language, the culture, and, and the historical contribution to the country to be integrated into the curriculum of the country. That has been an up, up, uphill battle, but it's also a work in progress. The third, the, ther, the, the third area has to do with political representation. I already explained uh, uh, to you the case of the a Supreme Court a justice, a, a, his name is Walter Miranda. And a, in Congress, we have been having a Garifunas a, for, for quite some time now. Let's say the last 30 or 40 years, there has been a continuous and uninterrupted participation of Garifunas in the, in the US Congress, in the Honduran Congress. Now, a, the, area, the other area that is dominating the agenda of the, of the Garifuna organizations is health. Uh, we, we need, or we have been uh, advocating or for, uh, for uh, health infrastructure in most uh, Garifuna communities. Uh, maternal mortality is extremely high in those communities. You need to travel either to San Pedro Sula or Tegucigalpa which is a commute for many communities between three to four hours if you want to have uh, comprehensive access to healthcare. 
Uh, particularly if you live in, in, the, in the community where my parents come from, which is La Playa, the last community almost bordering Nicaragua. Uh, here we are talking about a commute of seven or eight hours, right, Ms. Mirta? More. Uh, just to have some type of uh, if, uh, uh, access that can say, okay, I, I'm, 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 I'm doing well right here. The other area is uh, jobs and economic opportunities. Uh, I think that uh, there are some cases where uh, the Garifuna community has flourished, particularly around the 70s, 80s, and a lot, a lot of that uh, uh, grow in terms of economic opportunities was linked to the uh, presence of the United Fruit Company and the Standard Fruit Company. Uh, in the mid-1900s uh, and a little later. Now, the, uh, these uh, corporations, even though they, they are still in Honduras, they still have presence in Honduras, the, their presence is not that significant. At some point, uh, the country started to absorb uh, uh, some areas such as damaquilas or uh, industrial processing uh, complex uh, infrastructures that many of us are familiar with. Now, in the case of land rights, if I can say uh, something uh, that I think that is important to mention, the land rights uh, in Honduras, which is the area that has been more uh, present in the agenda of not only Garifuna organizations, but also uh, local leaders. <coughs> The land rights component, the, the land rights has four components, the land rights issue. Number one has to do with titling. Number two, freedom of encumbrances, meaning clean and clean land. Number three, we are talking about expansion because here we are essentially talking about communal land. And communal land is not subject to a access to a fi finance, uh, because it's communal, it's extremely limited. It's similar to the case in Colombia with Lay 70, right? Or, or the Quilombos in Brazil, and the list goes on and on because we have several examples in the Americas. So when we, when, uh, the, the other area that have to do, so expansion is extremely linked to the needs of having uh, agriculture uh, areas of land that are designed just for agricultural, acti agricultural activities within the community. That's extremely important for us. And the, air, the other area has to do, the last area, number four, will be linked to technical and financial assistance. We have been able to, to track US financial contribution to the Garifunas from the 70s. Some of them are from the Inter-American Foundation that have been supporting small farmers. And we strongly believe that the US foreign assistance has to be more narrowly tailored to address these uh, community issues. Uh, because if we address, particularly when it comes to immigration, <coughs> the issue of immigration from a common length, uh, the success is gonna be extremely limited. Here we are talking about a Central American region where we have a huge flow of immigration. The case of the Garifuna community, unlike other segments of the population, like the Salvadorian community, is, is extremely different. The Garifunas came here to the US in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, 
for economic opportunities through the uh, United Fruit Company and the Standard Fruit Company, which had their headquarters in New Orleans, in New York. Uh, and then in the case of countries like El Salvador, all of us are most of us are familiar with the war in El Salvador in the 60s and 70s. They came for many other reasons. Now, recently, many Garifunas have been also escaping violence. Uh, in Honduras as a whole, approximately uh, 13 uh, human rights and environmental leaders were murdered just in 2013 and 2023, and then 11 in 2022. And uh, when it comes to, and with this is, I'm, I'm finishing, when it comes to the cases before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, or before the Inter-American Human Rights System, which includes the Inter-American Commission here in Washington, D.C., the court in Costa Rica, and the Institute of, of Human Rights. There are four, approximately four landmark cases that have uh, taken place over the last few years. Uh, one of the most uh, recent one is the Garifuna Communities versus Government of Honduras, uh, and I'm talking about the Garifuna community of San Juan. Uh, uh, this case is, I believe, from 2023, and many of you can find these cases in the uh, judgment sections of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. The other case is the Garifuna community of Triunfo de la Cruz uh, versus uh, Honduras. And the third case is the Garifuna community of Punta Piedra versus government of Honduras. In all of these cases, the Inter-American Court have ruled or have concluded that the Honduran government failed to protect the property right, meaning the communal land of uh, the Garifuna community. And here they are referring essentially to Article 21 of the Inter-American Convention on Human Rights. But the, the, the court, uh, also, uh, in order to solve these cases, something extremely interesting in, in some of them, the court has been using satellite images where they first take title of the community from the 1950s, 60s, 70s in some cases, and now to assess how much or, or how many, uh, how, how much of that land has been taken over by non-indigenous people. And uh, in addition, the court also have mandated or have requested that the government of Honduras uh, create a, some type of basic education, uh, uh, health, uh, trash collection, and housing infrastructure to provide some type of assistance for these communities to, to uh, move on. This is just one component of what is driving the agenda of the human rights agenda of the Garifuna community. The other component has to do uh, significantly with climate change and obviously immigration. Let me jump to that with, with Andrew. We will go uh, later with the political aspect of all this with you, Ricardo. Andrew, um, Julio talked about some of the factors that push people to live Honduras, in, in the case of the Garifuna people specifically. Uh, and the climate change and, and, and the kind of natural <laughs> disasters uh, are always also a factor. Uh, the Eta and Yota hurricanes in the, in the last years have been, had, had an extraordinary impact in Honduras and specifically in, in the coast of Honduras. 
Can you tell us about the migration process and, and, and how, how that's the, 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 the Garifuna migration has evolved? Sure. Um, to, although I think there are people far more expert here on, on Garifuna migration than, than I am. But let me talk about the broader process. I mean, I, I think actually one of the most important things um, from a migration perspective of this conversation, I mean, there's lots of others, I think, from a perspective of, of the rights of people in Honduras. But from a migration side, it's always reminding us that we tend, in this, when we talk about issues in this country, we almost talk in terms of race and ethnicity, right? We're very conscious of it. When we talk about immigration, we treat people as nationalities. And in fact, there's lots of context underneath nationalities. And I think it's one of the huge missing pieces. We talk about Hondurans, the number of Hondurans that have come to the border. We talk about the, you know, the asylum acceptance rate for Hondurans. We talk, you know, everything is a generality. Garifuno gets lost in that. I mean, first of all, place gets lost, right? I mean, there's lots of context on why people leave. Or we say suddenly there are Ecuadorians coming in larger numbers. We don't really talk about where they're coming from, right? So there's a need for data, there's a need for conversation, there's a need for recognition of different kinds of services, different kinds of patterns of protection, all of that according to the texture. And in particular, you know, one of the things that I think gets lost is, is questions of race and ethnic identity, right? I mean, obviously Garifuna and Lenka as well in, in Honduras, but you know, Garifuna, as well as various Mayan peoples, Cachiquel and Mam and, and Quiche and, and many others in, in the case of Guatemala, Aymara and Quechua in the case of Bolivia, um, in Mexico, I mean, need to see it in Mexico, I mean, you know, 56 different, different ethnic groups from Tzotzil and Tzeltal to Purepuchas and, and Mixtecos. I mean, this is a, a really deeply, these are deeply textured societies, and we tend, in, in talking about immigration, to reduce them to nationalities, right? Which I think is a problem. And, it, and for the most part, I think it's a problem for our understanding, but it's also a problem actually in, in how we, we respond, right? So I, I am quite certain that there are great asylum officers and immigration officials who actually understand some of this texture. I mean, I think there, I, I know people out there who are phenomenal, but it doesn't tend to be part of our conversation, which means we miss key areas of this as we think about. Uh, as we think about asylum policies, as we think about legal pathways. I mean, we're talking about legal pathways. We tend to talk about countries as opposed to who has access to those legal pathways, right? The second point maybe is to, to say, I mean, asylum is hard to get in this country, um, not because the asylum grant rate is low. It it's, depends actually on the moment, and it really depends on the luck of the draw of the judge you get right now, the immigration judge. But but also because the system is so backed up that people have protection needs can end up waiting for five or six years to get even the initial decision. And so I think there's a huge question on how we correctly resource um, the asylum process, not just immigration courts, but really empower asylum officers to make first decisions. Um, I do think actually tightening up some of the filters is a good idea, which is something under debate in Congress at the moment. Um, but, but really having an asylum system that works in some sort of real time and can make decisions. And there's a huge question, I think, which this administration, you know, that Ricardo was part of until recently, has actually tried to think about doing protection closer to where people live. And this is sort of the idea behind the safe mobility offices. It's very much a work in progress. But the notion that people shouldn't have to hire a smuggler and get to the U.S. border to ask for asylum, that in fact there should be ways we identify people ahead of time. Some of this exists, some of this infrastructure exists right now in Central America through something called the, the protection transfer arrangement which allows some people to be identified by NGOs and UNHCR ahead of time for, 
for resettlement as refugees, but it is really nascent, and the idea of the SMOs is to increase this, but very much a work in progress. And then the question of other legal pathways, because not everyone fits into the protection criteria of asylum, and this, this happens with climate, right, including climate emergencies. I mean, there have been moments that instruments of protection like TPS have been used for climate emergencies, but it is not one of the, the reasons that gets you asylum, generally, right? And so thinking of other legal pathways that are more agile, that are possible when there are particular crises really matter. Um, thinking about regular legal pathways like H2 visas, H2 and H2B for people that don't want to move to the United States but would like to come and work for a period of time, make money and return, but want to stay anchored in their communities. There are huge questions. That, that has actually expanded a lot in the past three years but there are in Central America, but there are huge questions about who has access to those pathways because they tend to follow historic recru recruiting corridors. And so it, it's really important to actually look at who has access and not just the numbers on this. Um, there are quite, you know, J visas, C and D visas. There are other opportunities out there, the Central America Miners Program. There are other pathways, you know, and I think this administration has been very active in trying to, to sort of stretch the law at the margins and see how you increase some of these pathways. But, you know, my hope is always that down the road there is a real conversation about, you know, particularly at a time where the U.S. needs workers, you know, also how we create some of those legal pathways around work because, you know, some people head to the U.S. because of protection needs. Some people head because they know they have a job waiting for them. You know, and, and, and we would, it would be a good idea to actually begin to create those legal pathways in a more structured way that allow people then to do that legally. Final comment, I think, maybe is on diasporas because the Garifana people, you know, and, and Mirta and Julio know this far better than me, but it, it is a community that lives across multiple countries, right? I mean, this is... A, a people that is heavily in Honduras, of course, but almost as many in the United States, it's fair to say, and, and significant communities in, in Guatemala and Belize and elsewhere. And so, you know, the importance of diasporas, and I, and I think particularly since we're in Washington and we're USIP, I think one of the questions is also how in policy conversations in this country do we make sure we're talking to people in diaspora organizations who often have deeper knowledge of the issues that are going on in their own countries, who often have ideas on migration. And I think that's a huge challenge. I think that's something that, that doesn't happen naturally in the policymaking process. Um, and I think that is a, is a huge opportunity. And it's actually something, I know you've done some of this, Ricardo. I mean, it is something that is, it turns out to be really helpful to US policymakers when they do it. It just doesn't happen naturally most of the time. Um, and there are real opportunities to think of remittances in more creative ways as well, because as remittance, Honduras, the remittance rate is about, remittances are about 27, 28% of GDP. Last time I checked, I can't remember the exact number. That is a lot, okay? If you told me that 28% of GDP was made up of, oh, say, copper, people would be laser focused on copper. But we assume remittances are individual contributions to families, they're transfers between families, there's nothing policy can do about it. And that's somewhat true. We don't want governments getting involved in remittance streams, but it matters the cost of remittances. It matters whether those remittances go into financial institutions. And by the way, if those remittances can go into financial institutions that actually lend in local communities, not just the big banks, but in actual cooperatives and microbanks and institutions that are closer to where people live, not only does that create some savings for people, but it also creates real opportunities to actually invest in communities of origin of migrants. And, and that's an area that I think is almost entirely untapped right now in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. And it's a, it's a huge issue that I think Honduras actually does have 
a fairly extensive cooperative microbank um, uh, network out there. And, and one question is, how do you support that as a way of making sure that, that remittances not only help households, but can actually help the larger community around um, and not just the big banks. The big banks are important in this, but they, you know, when you send the big banks, big banks will lend in the big cities, right? So the question is, how do you get this into local financial institutions? Ricardo, uh, with you, um, did you, you participated in the design of the Biden administration's uh, root causes strategy, and you were part of the implementation of the strategy. I want you to remember that you are not anymore uh, <laughs> State Department <laughs> official, and to forget that we are in an electoral year, and tell us, do you think in the, in the case of Honduras, and specifically in the case of or for Garifunas, that strategy, that strategy had a real impact uh, in, terms of, uh, in, in terms of migration, but obviously in terms of um, supporting human rights or making a real change? So thanks for those reminders, uh, Jose Luis. That's, that, that's, that's useful, uh, although it was a very journalistic question. Uh, so, uh, so first of all, thank you very much uh, for the chance to be here. And it's really wonderful to be here with real experts. Uh, so let me just start by saying, one, that what you've heard here about the complexity of the challenge, you have to understand as part of why the, the Biden administration approached this with real humility, because there is a long history of US assistance in Central America, many billions of dollars. And then we look at the circumstances, uh, and, and so the, a lot of the questions are, what can we do differently? And the, uh, you know, those were, there have been extremely challenging times in Central America in the 1980s. You mentioned the wars. Uh, certainly uh, multiple natural disasters, uh, long-standing structural problems being really what is underneath all of this. This is, you know, I think we, I specifically said many times when we were in, in conference rooms, we are not going to change 500 years of history uh, with the funding uh, for the root causes strategy. We, we can try to do a couple of different things. Um, one is, and, and really when I'm talking about the migration-focused piece of this, it, when you boil it down, when we're really talking about is giving people a logical reason to stay at home, especially people who want to stay at home. And the root cause of strategy is not for really designed to deal with uh, either cultural migration or family migration where people want to go for reasons of family and, and uh, you know, reasons to, you know, to be able to work temporarily. That's not really what it's about. It's about people who don't want to leave, who would prefer to stay, uh, and to give them a reason to do that. And we tried to do that two ways. And I'll just, I'll answer your question first off. Has it been effective? Uh, clearly not enough. I mean, I think we can, I can point to examples of assistance. I can point to what I would say are inputs, things that we have put into this. But in terms of the outputs, the results, the ground speaks for itself. What we're seeing is really the, the, the response. It is not enough. We try uh, to do two things. Uh, we tried to do two things with U.S. assistance. One was uh, large and systemic, and that was focus on governance. People 
will not stay if they do not feel represented, if they do not feel like they have access to justice, if they do not feel like they have a government that is responsive to their basic community needs. That's, that's true for everyone. So at, the, at the large systemic level, that is why we focused on issues like elections and democracy, uh, really everywhere, but especially from Nicaragua North. Um, that's why it was so important. Uh, then there was a recognition, I think a greater recognition uh, by Samantha Power at USAID, by the Vice President, by, uh, by the White House, that the way that we had delivered U.S. assistance in the past did not reach people, was not felt, uh, even though, and here I want to make a, a shameless propaganda for the Inter-American Foundation, which is one of the best instruments of U.S. assistance in existence. It is very small in terms of the amount of funding that it has, but it's important because it's ideal for a situation like this where there is a specific community that is rooted to a location that has, an, that has this identity that, uh, of wanting to stay and live within its traditions. The Inter-American Foundation is so important because what it does is it works with from ideas that come from communities where the communities put in half of the the commitment and the Inter-American Foundation comes in with the other half to work on plans that are developed and administered by the community. That's U.S. assistance at its best, but it's small and it, it, is, it is intended to be small scale. And the challenges that face the Garifuna community are systemic, large, structural, and movements of history. And this is what we're seeing, you know, every challenge Every area of work of the Garifuna community that Julio described uh, is an area where USAID or Department of Justice or Department or U.S. Department of Agriculture has a program and has a presence in Honduras, but not focused on the Garifuna community necessarily. Right? It's about the large country, and you know these the, the effort there is to try to create a system within which the Garifuna can have some success in achieving progress in their relationship with the Honduran state, in their relationship with, with the other actors there, uh, companies, um, other communities, et cetera. It is very, very challenging. And I think there, our experience shows just how hard it is, even when you have committed communities that have a long history of involvement and know what they want and know how to get it, but, and, and in fact have a strong international presence, it is still very difficult. Uh, and, and it has to do, I mean, just I'll close with this, just like one example. Uh, Julio, you mentioned the importance of land and access to communal land and the importance of agriculture. Well, you know, a lot of what we do as, as a, as a uh, donor or cooperator is try to foster greater job growth, greater job opportunities, greater investment. Well, that's also intention in many cases with the needs of some local communities. And so resolving that is a very difficult, uh, and I would say, you know, imperfect is the diplomatic term. It's really, it, it's just hard. And I think that having feedback, constant feedback, uh, talking to the United States government, but not just to the US, to the Honduran government in, in, in connection with other donors is really important. Uh, so, uh, Jose Luis, I don't know if that was sufficiently uh, 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 
plain or honest, but I think it's, uh, it was less, less government speak than I normally would use, so. You're trying, you're, you're All right, I'm trying, I'm trying. Uh, I want to take some questions. Uh, you usually let that for the last minutes, but I think we, we will take some questions from the audience and then come back here for a last uh, extensive uh, round with you all, because uh, I'm afraid if not, we will take all the time from the Q&A um, uh, space. So, so maybe three, four questions, and we come back. Yes, there, is there a mic? Can you introduce yourself? And Hi, my name is Contessa Bourbon. Uh, thank you for this informative forum. I'd like to ask, how is government helping this community, the Galipuna community? Is there, are there projects in housing, health, and education for the people? What do you recommend? You're talking about the Honduran government or the US government? Honduran, Honduran government. Here and then there. Thank you very much. And my name is Bina Nepram. I'm the senior advisor on indigenous issues here at the United States Institute of Peace. Thank you so much for sharing um, this excellent panel. Um, my question is very um, um, simple, but in, I wanted to know. Is the Garifuna community engaged with other indigenous communities in Honduras and also at the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues to, to come together to understand and find ways of responses towards dealing with this really complex crisis, dealing with land, rights, absence of your history, and all of that which has been explained. And finally, I also wanted to know what are the strategies um, because we know indigenous communities are also very resilient communities. And I wanted to know if what are your traditional uh, ways in which you have learned to navigate uh, and to be resilient and to work towards peace building uh, in this particular issue. I happened to also meet the daughter of um, Bertha uh, Caceres, who was uh, um, killed uh, because of her environmental defending work. And I wanted to know what are your connections with other indigenous communities in Honduras to collectively fight for your rights, your justice, and your peace? Thank you. Thank you. Um, some question there. Hi there. Uh, my name is Hope Isaacson. This was a little bit more general, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts about uh, corporate America's role in this conflict, especially land disputes, similar to how the United Fruit Company uh, their presence in Honduras and their expropriation of land through, throughout Central America for banana plantations in the past that has not has been continued by corporate America, not by the United Fruit Company per se, but by many companies that use it, these international bases to bypass U.S. regulations. Uh, and I just want to hear your thoughts on uh, that, because despite the money that we've sent to Central America, we do have a significant role in that in terms of our corporations. 
Thank you. Any other question in the room? Yeah, there. Hi, my name's Emma Beadle. I just had a question specifically. You sit closer to the mic, please. Near me now. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking specifically about the diversity of the Garifuna people, now intercontinental diversity, how can we implement frameworks or information sharing networks or policies to increase unity of the Garifuna people across continents? And what have you all seen previously in work that's been effective to unite indigenous communities that have been mass displaced? Thank you. Um, we have a last one there. Hi, Elvia Duque, race and, race and Ethnicity Program Officer at Race and Equality. Uh, thank you for this amazing panel, and it's good to see good faces, um, uh, familiar faces, excuse me. And my question is regarding what response would you give to what they say in Honduras to the needs of the Garifuna community and what I heard during the, my last visit to Honduras. They, all, they, I hear this all the time, that the Garifunas are doing well because they had money sent to them from the USA. And the consequence of this statement, when uh, the Garifuna community tried to approach, or tried to dialogue with, uh, within the states uh, in Honduras and with any other communities uh, than is, of course, in, in Honduras. Thank you. Most of the questions, obviously, are for you, uh, Mirta, and you, Julio. So let's go with you, and then I can, I can add some questions for you, too. Okay. I'll, um, I'm going to ask some, and uh, probably not complete, but then Julio will do that. Um, first, um, the, uh, if we have um, a program for housing, uh, health, and um, I don't know of a program of housing. They have been program of housing, but not from the government of Honduras, but from international uh, programs. Um, they have been the health issue. Um, I learned with the COVID that most people who we told they have retired and go back to Honduras, and that they remain in the US because of the health. Because like, uh, like Julio said before, if you're living in La Playa, which is eight, nine, 10 hours from La Playa to go to get to, um, not to get to La Ceiba, it's like about 12 hours by car because it's the only way. There is no airplane, you have to go by road, and very bad road. By the time you get to Tocoa, you are lifeless. So you have to move, there is no system. And the other thing, there is, no, um, there is no health system that covers that. Um, the other day, um, a friend of mine, who this, the uh, son is a doctor in one of the community, I think it's after Limon, and uh, there was a shooting that he was almost um, shot. And then he doesn't want to return to work there in that place and then, uh, then they're not, they not going to have a doctor then. Uh, they're the only doctor who was working in that, in that area. That's one. 
Uh, but I think we go a little bit more in terms of the education. There is no, um, even in Trujillo, we don't have no, uh, no college in Trujillo. In order for people to, you go to, to grammar, you finish grammar school, sixth grade, and we're talking about 50-something community in Honduras, you have to go to the city. And who's going to support you as a child? Who's going to support you in the city? And, and yes, like Elbia uh, just mentioned, and then the U.S. from the U.S. Um, and then probably later on, we're going to uh, probably talk a little bit more about what's happening in U.S. Uh, with this community. But then if you don't have no relatives, in, and then you, you're not going to go to college. Because even first, the college is not free. Second, you have to move from the community in order for you to go to the city. And yes, uh, in terms of getting involved, uh, with other um, with other indigenous people, uh, first the Central American Black Organization is not composed only of Garifuna people. We have uh, um, 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 mosquitoes in the in the in the organization. Uh, we have uh, English speaking um, 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 blacks of Central America uh, in the organization. Um, so, and, and I know also that um, uh, Ofrane also was part of, uh, of, of, uh, of an organization in Honduras that was uh, of indigenous, also composed of indigenous um, uh, organization. Uh, but then we also go um, beyond the Central American um, we uh, have been part of all the process of the UN uh, in the Declaration of um, uh, International Decade of Afro Descent. We have so we have engaged in all of those uh, uh, process, um, and then uh, we support others, and others also uh, support us. When we commemorated the 200 years uh, of the um, arrival of the uh, Garifuna people to Honduras, um, we were able uh, to bring more than 200 people all over to Honduras to that commemoration. And that is beside people from the region, from the different countries who also came uh, because we already have uh, been working also with them. Julio? Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Mrs. Mirta. And, 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 and these are great questions. We are talking about five questions. I'm going to, be, I'm going to try to be very brief on, on uh, my reactions to each of them. Uh, the first one on how uh, the Honduran and the US government are helping the Garifuna community. In the, in the Honduran side, there has been an ongoing relationship between Garifunas and the government. The Garifunas are legally recognized in Honduras as a, cult, as a culturally and ethnically uh, different community. We are part of the government body that uh, comprises of all the nine ethnic groups. And this government body is responsible for uh, the identification, design, and implementation of certain government policies to work with each of these agencies. Now, generally, or over the last 15, 20 years, there have been changes in, a, in, in these offices. 
at, at some point back in 2010, it was a ministry on indigenous people that was led by, led by Agarifuna. That happened right after the coup. Many of you remember the coup that we had in Honduras back in 2009, 2010. Honduras was trying to open diplomatic relationships with many of the countries that broke relationship with, the country, with, with Honduras. So they created a ministry of, on indigenous people that was led by a member of the Garifuna community. That ministry only lasted three years or four years. Right after, it became like a directory, like a specific office, a very small office, when the new government took over. And uh, since then, many issues that have to do with land rights, education, and all the other policy aspects that I mentioned, when went down because this ministry didn't have financial resources to implement many of their policies. Uh, Hondurans are very, uh, or Garifunas are very entrepreneurial people. We depend heavily on the remittances that come from the bronze mostly. Uh, in the bronze, there are approximately 300,000 Garifunas just in the bronze. Uh, we have to uh, mention that there is a significant number in Florida and another in Massachusetts. States like North Carolina have a significant uh, Garifuna community. Obviously, uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, uh, in LA, in uh, Baltimore in the DMV area. There is a significant Garifuna community in Baltimore. Many of these folks send three, four hundred dollars a month to their family. Because with those two dollars, with that daily rate of two dollars, we won't be able to survive. But if any of them come across an opportunity to cross the border, they will go ahead and, 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 and take it. Unless we come up with a, a, a policy that helps us address many of these historical uh, and structural a racist a infrastructure that we have in, in, in the country. Now, uh, at the US government, the Honduras, the Garifuna people also have been, uh, for the last 40 years, I will say, coming to Washington, DC. Sometimes to come, they come to talk to members of Congress to try to raise awareness about the issues that, that Garifunas have. Sometimes they will come to some of the multilateral development banks that have a specific projects in the, in the Garifuna communities. And sometimes they will come to some of the agencies that do mostly bilateral work. We understand that dynamic because there is a 40 years of ongoing relationship with each of these agencies. However, where we see the greatest challenges is in making sure that each of these agencies uh, create a strategy tailored to work with segments of the populations like the Garifuna community. If you look at the country strategy of most of the multilateral development banks that are in Washington, D.C., we have been asking uh, the executive director of the U.S., we have been asking the president of the multilateral development bank or vice president in some cases responsible for Latin America or, or Honduras to work with us to incorporate in the country strategy aspects that have to do with each education, land rights, jobs and economic opportunities, climate change, you name it. That has been a very big challenge. And a lot has to do with the fact that Washington DC is heavily driven by projects in a scale. The incentive in most multilateral development banks, in some bilaterals too, 
are based on the size of the operation. Uh, so often, uh, for those type of projects, Brazil, Mexico, Chile, Argentina tend to be a lot more attractive because you start moving up in the scale of opportunities within the organization if you work with those type of transactions. So the incentive to work with the Garifuna populations like the Garifuna community is very limited. The other uh, aspects that we have been also trying to address is the whole issue about hiring, retention, and promotion of members of uh, people that come from communities like the Garifuna community, which also have been a very uh, uphill challenge. Often, members of the Garifuna community, if there is a specific $400, $300 million project in, in Honduras, we have to compete. The procurement and acquisition processes require us to compete with members of the 46 members of the, or 150 members of the countries because the resources come from all of them. So unless we come up with a, a very tailored approach, because now, a, we are still operating under infrastructures that were created 50 years ago or 40 years ago. Now we have technology, technologies all over to assess a, in a relatively timely fashion manner the macro aspects of the region. Now it's time to start looking at the micro elements of every single transaction that, a, that we in the US have with, the, with, the, with each of these governments, particularly in the case of the government of Honduras. I have found very effective conditionalities in every single financial transaction. If there is a loan agreement or a technical cooperation agreement, okay, I'll give you these resources, but it's subject to you clearing up the land issues that you have with the Garifunas. 30 years ago, we saw a very close relationship between the OAS, particularly the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, and, or, and some of the multilateral development institutions where you were able, or we see some cases where some, uh, where some uh, transactions were linked or subject to some of these human rights issues. But from, uh, uh, let's say, the last 30 years until now, uh, we have been coming across cases, most of the cases, in fact, most multilateral development institutions are moving toward the approach of becoming more like a policy base or credit line type of uh, uh, organizations mm -hmm. uh, because they have been delivering many of the aspects or projects and programs that have to do with Garifuna communities to some of the local, sub-regional or local banks, which also put the, had put the Garifuna community in a very awkward situation when you are dealing with a government where you don't have representation or a, the a participation of members of the community is limited. A, just with that, a, I also want to quickly talk about the, the other question about how we are integrating other networks with indigenous mm -hmm. communities. The Garifunas were part of the a, creation of the Declaration on Indigenous People that was created by the UN back in 2006, 2007. We were part of that process. Similarly, at the OAS, I was part of that process. A, and, and since the Garifunas are Afro and indigenous, we have been able to integrate and to a certain extent navigate both uh, networks extremely well. We went to the summits of the Americas, we went to uh, 
COP26, COP27, COP28 recently uh, in, 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 in Dubai. Uh, we are preparing to COP29. We are preparing to COP for COP30 in Brazil. All of this work is being done in coordination with regional and international uh, networks. And that's how we have been able to make some progress in the areas that we, are, that we have been talking about. Uh, in April, uh, there is a delegation, and more likely Ms. Mirta is going to be there. There is going to be the third session of the United Nations Permanent Forum on People of African Descent, which is going to take place in Geneva between the 16th and the 17th. And the idea is to create a unified uh, uh, approach with all the other allies that we have uh, to advance the agenda for recognition, justice, and development of Afro-descendants and indigenous people. Thank you. Thank you. And Ricardo, there was a question uh, about America, um, corporate America. And I want you to, to, to address that, that topic. And I'll also, I want to um, put, put it together with, with a question on how to make sure that Garifuna people or, or people's, uh, people like the Garifuna one can be part of the, the whole development, development uh, process in Central America. In, in a previous conversation, you told me that you're worried about Central America um, losing the train of, of the, um, of the um, um, sorry, um, I, I mean, in terms of the development and in terms of, of, of uh, production chains and productive chains and, and uh, add value chains in, in, mm -hmm. in, uh, at an international level. That, that problem obviously is, is worse for, for communities or people that are uh, more focused in, in some uh, areas like fishing or, or agriculture uh, and also are marginalized by their governments. So can you kind of address yeah. those two topics? Look, I mean, I think the, 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 the question of, it is a very complicated set of questions. You mentioned the role of United Fruit, Standard Fruit in the history of the Garifuna. No somewhat positive way, I would say, and which is not necessarily how you would always hear the role of standard fruit and united fruit described in, the, in well, anywhere, uh, in Honduras. Uh, and, and yet, it does come to this central tension that, uh, that I mentioned earlier between fostering job growth, but also understanding that uh, these larger economic forces, including international corporations, put pressure on uh, communities that have particularly ones where you're talking about communal resources and, and land in particular. Uh, because a lot of the traditional economic activities in Central America, writ large, that in, including in the Garifuna community, are, you can't compete with, say, corn exports from, uh, or fruit exports from large producers all over the world. And it's not just, I mean, I know that it was specific to, to U.S. corporations, but the, the reality is that many of the challenges facing Garifuna have to do with Honduran corporations and other corporations, some, some who are multinational, some that are financed locally, some that are financed multinationally. Uh, but this is particularly where you're talking about extractive industries. It's corporations from all over the world, China, South Korea, 
uh, Taiwan, the United States, Europe, everywhere. It, it has much more to do with what the, what the local environment is like, what safeguards exist. Um, and importantly, um, because this was raised here, some corporations face much more pressure to behave in socially responsible ways uh, than, than others. And that pressure exists for a reason and has been used uh, effectively uh, to draw attention where there are violations and where, where money is involved. I mean, I, I think of it much more in terms of in environmental cases where there are very sophisticated um, firms, uh, law firms and, and uh, advocacy firms that have found ways to ensure, for example, that supply chains are, are, are exempt from de deforested products and so forth, or in, the, in labor chains. The issue of forced labor is the other one where you've seen this. So there are mechanisms for doing this, but there is this tension. How do you, um, you know, what kind of job growth, what kind of job creation in northern Honduras is going to be complementary to Garifuna culture and what kind of growth is actually going to put further stress I'm good, even a culture. I don't have a good answer there. I think that that's a that's a that's a that's a serious challenge in in Central America right now. And to your larger point uh, about where Central America is and sort of like this is a new era. The one thing I would say that is also different about this in terms of like we're, this is all about globalization. There is also now a turn to to not racing to the bottom. Uh, you see this more uh, in. Like the, the point of industrial policy in the United States and the Biden administration, and and to some extent even on the on the Republican side has been that about jobs in the United States that sometimes it's worth paying a higher cost in order to preserve a way of life. Well, that applies in other parts of the world as well. And so, if that's a value that should be part of corporate culture, then I think that that is. You know, there is room to make that a point. Yes, it costs more to preserve a certain culture, and that is a cost worth paying. Uh, but making that case uh, requires the support not just of, of governments, but of multilateral banks uh, to incorporate that, to include that. And what you're talking about is a move in a, in a, in a very different direction, conditionality that's moving in a different direction, away from uh, uh, support for rights and ways of life, because that's really what we're talking about. Thank you, and, and we have just a, a few last minutes, uh, and I want to jump into, into the diaspora, uh, the Garifuna diaspora. Uh, shortly, uh, Andrew, I, I want you to talk, talk about, um, and, and then Julio and Mirna just wrapping up. Uh, what then can you say about the, the role of the diasporas in terms of, in this case of, in, in, in this kind of uh, type of cases? I mean, they're the experts on this, but let me say in general, I mean, on diasporas, I mean, I think there is a, an often untapped knowledge that diasporas have about their own communities um, back in their countries of origin. They're in deep ties. I mean, increasingly, people do engage in transnational activity and transnational activism, right, as through the Garifunas. Um, and there is an ability, I think, for U.S. policymakers, for U.S. businesses, for that matter, for U.S. NGOs, to learn from 
how diasporas see what's going on in their own communities. You know, I, it's not a substitute also for talking to people there, but it is, I think, a, a necessary pathway. And I think we often underestimate how deep those ties are. In the case of the Garifuna in particular, I mean, it is a really powerful, I mean, you've got almost half and half, right? I mean, I can't remember exactly which is more at this point, but, but it is a very divided people at this point with the numbers in the United States as well as across Central America. And, but the ties are incredibly close, right? And obviously we've talked about the finances as well. I mean, the, the financial side is incredibly close. And the ability to generate, but this is a challenge in the case of Garifuna, because of the conditions on the ground. But what's worked in some other cases is also questions of investment. Right? I mean, how do you generate the ability of people to go back and invest? But you can't do that if you don't have policies on the ground that make it possible for people to you know, go to middle school and high school and college, if you, don't have, if you don't have health clinics, if you don't have roads that get people in there, right? I mean, we haven't said remittances. Remittances are a powerful way of pulling people out of poverty. It is not a development strategy absent other things that you put in there, right? And if you don't, if there aren't schools, if there aren't healthcare facilities, if people aren't connected by, by roads, it, the money you send back still matters, right? It, it changes the lives of, of average households. It does create some consumption, but it's not going to generate development without the other inputs. And that's something that governments have to do. The U.S. government can be supportive, the Canadian government, others, but ultimately that's on the Honduran government to to make that happen. No. Julio? Yeah, it, I think that is, is also worth to mention that the situation of the Garifuna community is a situation of, we have approximately 50 million people of uh, indigenous people in the region, 50 million, just in Latin America and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are a lot of commonalities. But in the case of people of African descent, we are talking about 150 million. Just in Latin America and the Caribbean, that doesn't include the approximately uh, 53 or 56 million African Americans, Africans, and people like the Garifuna community that after the third generation, they also self-identify as African American. I often have to uh, wear that hat because I'm a phenotypically African American too. Uh, when people see me walking on the street, they are looking at an African American unless they hear me talking. So just in Latin America and the Caribbean, we are talking about 400 million hectares of land, mostly forest, under the manage, control, or supervision of people of African descent or indigenous people. That provides us with a wealth of opportunities, despite of all the challenges that we are describing. There are a lot of opportunities, particularly now that we are talking about nature-based solutions. Uh, in the area of climate change, we see that there is a huge pot Every one of the 46 Garifuna communities that we have, just in Honduras, not to mention the one in Belize, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, has a, 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 has a river. All of them have the potential for a small hydro or some type of renewable energy. Or, a, or energy efficiency program from, from solar, wind. And, and, and I think that that's where we need to go collectively over the next few years. But changing the financial infrastructure in a way that address local issues, 
And in that regard, a risk capacity building, research, and implementation is key. That's why organizations like the Inter-American Foundation that do a very localized work you know, is important in the region. Or when it comes to research, the Migration Policy Institute that is able to track the level of details that very few organizations in the whole region, in the whole Western Hemisphere, is, is able to, con to conduct. I think that that's the direction on which we have to move. Uh, we have to deviate a little bit from that uh, historical practice of essentially dealing with central government. When, we, when you deal with a central government, uh, there is a whole issue, because it's a, often it's a relationship between two governments of, of, or a multilateral development institutions. Uh, and you can start a program today, and tomorrow there is a change of, uh, on either of the two governments. And that means that that specific program will be repurposed or uh, reframed, restructured. And that has been a general practice over the last few years. Just with the latest natural disaster we had in Honduras, ETA and Yota, that, that you mentioned in 2020, uh, there were $4 billion of loss in the infrastructure. Uh, and multilateral development banks and some bilateral institutions were figuring out a way of helping with the relief, reconstruction, and recovery. And generally, the, easier, the easy way is to work with the central government. Because when you work with community-based organizations or local organizations, you have to do a lot of, of a legwork. But that legwork can be facilitated if you address these issues with organizations that have the historical infrastructure to do it, like the Inter-American Foundation of the Migration Policy Institute, and, and in this case, I believe the U.S. Institute of Peace that is also navigating these waters. Thank you. Thank you. Mirta. It's uh, very challenging to work on one-to-one -one with the community and also to work uh, on, uh, with the government on the it's a very, very, very challenging because you are in, 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 in two uh, areas at the same time. And sometimes you don't know which one uh, is the, the priority, which one um, could be addressed uh, first or last. And, but I remember when I came to this country, we have uh, a lot of organizations here in, in, in New York from the different community. And what they were doing, it was to fundraise because they were the one who put a light um, electricity in their community. They were the one who put a school in, this com in their community or uh, a small clinic in their community. They were the one in charge of doing that. So that's one. Um, the other thing is that throughout the uh, Central American Black Organization, we were able also um, um, with the United Nations Declaration on the International Decade of the uh, uh, Afro-descent, we also um, came and, and approached the um, um, Sistema de Integración Centroamericanas, um, Integration System of Central America, so that we could work. So with, with this, I'm saying that we have tried our best to work with the region gover regional governments regionally. It's not that uh, we have not approached them to work with us, with our, with our community. Um, and then, and we talking about 2014, 
that we sit down with the Central American um, integration system and, and, and create um, uh, a proposal on how to work with the community. And that proposal, that was 20, 2014, and it's still at a draft. And traveling almost every year, two, three times a year, to the office in Central America so that we could talk about it, so that we could work on it. And it's still a draft up to date. And however, some of the pieces of the proposal was taken and, 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 and submit a proposal for them to get, um, to get some financial resource to say that uh, they're working with the community and they have been able um, to get some funding. And we know because they're telling us, but then they put their people to work on it. They're not bringing us to work with them on that. Um, so it's not gonna get far because if we're not involved, we're the one who knows the community. If we don't get involved, so it's gonna be um, like a, 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 a problem. And like that many things, and we right now, one of our priority, like Julio said, is the language. We're losing, we're losing our language. And our kids is not longer speaking our language, but they are speaking, either they speak English in Belize, or they speak uh, Spanish in all of the other countries. And we want to maintain that language because it's, the, it's, uh, it's, it's our identity, it's, our, uh, it's ours, it's, it's to keep the, 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 the inner uh, peace, inner uh, uh, individual um, to keep that uh, is the language. So we approach uh, UNESCO uh, in order to help us. And UNESCO is willing to do that. But we, they can't give us the financial resource. It has to go through the government. So those are the challenges that we face because that's fine. We don't have no problem because we have tried to work with our governments. But will that be real? And because we end up not believing if we try and try and try and, and, and nothing works, seems to be working, what else to do? And, uh, and then the other piece of this is the community here. And I, I was saying that the people were working and sending money for, to building whatever in their community. Now we can't send money anymore because there is a huge community of need with uh, a lot of needs, not only in New York, but throughout the United States, but the biggest one is in New York. And we have to work with Asylum Seeker. We have to work with TPS. We have to work with basic needs like housing. We have to work as basic need as food. And uh, what do you do? What else can you do? I'm getting tired. I'm ready to retire. And I'm not seeing no doors that is opening. It's frustrating. It's, 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 uh, it's, I don't know how to call it, but our community, I think, um, continue 
um, to push, continue to be there. Um, Tuesday next week, we're going to Albany. We already have a bus to go to Albany to do to, uh, for advocacy for the people living in, 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 in New York and the state of New York. In April, we're coming to the US, I mean, to, to here, to Washington. And we were able to um, obtain the, uh, throughout um, Congressman Rishi Torres to declare April 1st to the 30th um, as a Garifuna Heritage Month. We are right now in the uh, census of the US. And no, we have not been sitting down. We have been working and we continue to do so. But we still need of support. Thank you, Mirta, Julio, Ricardo, Adrio. Has been an amazing conversation, I think. You, uh, the conversation has opened a lot of areas of work. And, and you share amazing ideas. So thank you, thank you, USIP. I want to thank, uh, I forgot before, uh, thank Fundación Avina for helping El Faro, uh, Faro's work uh, in, in, in topics like migration. And thank you, you all, uh, for being here. Again, applause. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.